Good morning. It is my, uh, my joy and my privilege to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. And before we get started, I would like to ask the Lord's blessing. So would you, would you pray with me? Father, may that be the desire of our hearts that your kingdom will come, that your will be done so that everyone might know your name. And do this, Lord. We continue to work in us until your sovereign work is done. Lord, I ask that your kingdom would be built in this church, in our lives, in our families, in our own hearts. And Lord, would you sustain each of us to do ministry to one another until we all become mature and complete in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Bill and John are two friends. And they grew up together. And uh, in college, they kind of went their separate ways. But several years ago, each of them moved themselves and their families back to their hometown. Bill has been a Christian for several years, and while he was away living in Kansas City, he really enjoyed the, the, the rich and solid teaching of his church in Kansas City. And John has always claimed to be a Christian, but only recently uh, did he truly commit his life to Christ. And now these two men share a common bond of love for their Savior and for the Scriptures. So, Bill invites John to a Bible study that he attends, and, and John eagerly agrees. And it becomes evident to Bill pretty quickly, as John quickly catches up where the other men are at, that John is just taking in the Word of God and just, just killing it. And Bill is so encouraged by John's hunger for truth, and he thinks to himself, man, this guy is on fire. And if someone would just, I mean, he's doing this just with a Bible study and Sunday, Sunday service. And if someone would take time and invest in his life, man, think of, think of the godly man that guy could become. Somebody should take time and invest in that guy's life. But nobody really does. As time goes on, Bill and John begin to spend more time together. They, their families spend time together, and, and Bill starts to see uh, some gaps in John's life. He sees that though uh, John is growing in his knowledge of theology and the scriptures, he's noticing that it's not quite making connections and translating into his life. There's some, there's some issues that Bill is starting to see. And Bill thinks to himself, man, John is doing so well, but... If, if these issues aren't addressed, it could be a real problem for him. Somebody needs to take time and show him that, that these things that are doing are problematic. Somebody needs to help him. But no one really is. And Bill doesn't know what to do. He loves this idea of helping somebody become more like Christ, what I'm going to call discipleship and what we're going to call discipleship this morning. He loves that idea. Uh, he, was, he learned about it at his church, but he's always thought about it in terms of something that should be done for him, and he's never really thought about it in terms of something that he should be doing for someone else. He wants to help, but he doesn't know what to say. What if he says the wrong thing? What if, what if he messes him up worse? What if, what if he ruins their friendship? Bill thinks, to himself, how could I do this? I mean, we're the same age. Isn't that supposed to be like an older guy thing? I don't know how that's going to work. And maybe if you're listening to that story and you're putting yourself in Bill's place, you'd be thinking, yeah, that kind of might would be me. I don't really know if I've thought of discipleship in terms of something that I should be giving to someone else. That's something that, that I need. 
And often, when we think about discipleship, especially doing this ministry to one another, we can lack the confidence to be able to help others become more like Christ. And so today, I want to kind of push back on that, that temptation to have a consumeristic mindset, and I want to give you guys confidence from the Scriptures that discipleship is not just something that we take in, but it's actually something that we can, we can give. It's something we can dispense And you can do that with confidence, and that's not because of your ability, but it's because of the one who is working in you. So, first off, what do I mean when I say discipleship? Well, Mark Dever, who's a pastor of a a Baptist church in Kansas City, he gives this really good definition of discipleship, and that's what I want to be working with this morning. And he defines discipleship as deliberately doing spiritual good to someone in order that they might in order that he or she would become more like Christ. Discipleship is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone in order that he or she might be more like Christ. Okay, that's a great definition. Well, how do we do this? Well, that's what, that's what brings us to our text this morning. I'm so excited to be able to share God's word with you. So if you haven't already done so, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 28 and 29. We're going to see four key realities of someone who is a dispenser of discipleship and not just a consumer. And we're going to see that if you have the right focus, if you utilize the right means, if you're grounded in the right understanding and in you employ the right effort, you can have confidence that the Lord will be glorified and the Lord can work through you. So, Colossians chapter 1. Just real quick, this... This book is written by Paul to the church at Colossae, which is somewhere in eastern Turkey. Paul's in prison when he's writing this. He's never met these people before. And Paul is so encouraged by this group of believers who are are seeking to grow in the knowledge and grace of Christ. And in verses 15 through 23, Paul describes this, this, uh, he describes this amazing Christ who has saved him. He gives this wonderful description of the majesty and the glories of Christ. And then, verses 24 through 27, Paul talks about this this group of people for whom this amazing God-man died for. That is the church. And it's the same people that Paul himself is willing to suffer for. And he does so joyfully. And why would Paul be willing to suffer for a group of people he's never even met? Well, the reason is, is that he desires to see them complete and mature in Christ. So, if you're there, Romans or no, sorry, Colossians 1 verses 28 and 29. Paul says, "Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me." If we're going to have confidence that we can do deliberate good to someone in order they might become more like Christ, we need to start with the right focus. we got to have the right focus. And that's what Paul starts with, him we proclaim. This, this word proclaim is often used of, of a herald who would go before the king and announce the king's coming and tell the people who was coming and by what authority he's coming and what he has to say. And Paul says, him we proclaim. And we can 
We could spend all day talking about this, and so I really struggled on how to, on how to structure this, but uh, suffice it to say, there is way more information on how to proclaim Christ and who Christ is than we could cover today. So for, for our purposes, I'm going to simplify it down to three ways we proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ as supreme. Notice the singularity of the statement, him we proclaim. Him, that is Jesus. We, that is Paul, but not just Paul, those who are ministering with Paul. So this is every believer, everyone who has, been, who has surrendered their life and trusted in Christ. Him we proclaim. That's it. We do not need to add something to the personal work of Jesus Christ. We need him. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says of this, this, this Savior, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in verse 18, he says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or have supreme or first place. He is, he is superior. He is supreme. And often we think of this that, okay, well, this is kind of like a priority list. And that means if Jesus is supreme, he needs to be first at the top of the list. And then we have, you know, family and then friends and then my favorite burger joint and my hobbies and everywhere else. That's, that's, what, that's what that's talking about. It's actually not talking about. Preeminence is first in everything. So what Paul is saying here that when Christ is preeminent, when we're talking about proclaiming Christ as supreme, what we're saying is that he's not just at the top of the priority list. He is first in every priority on the list. He's first in your home. He's first in your work. He's first in your hobby. He's first in your relationships. It is Christ and only Christ. He would say, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 9, why is this? Because in him, Paul says, chapter 2, verse 9, all the fullness of God's deity dwells bodily in Christ. Jesus is king. He is supreme. We are to proclaim him as supreme. Secondly, in order to have confidence in having the right focus, we proclaim Christ as Savior. He is the solution. In Colossians 1.20, actually, I'm going to go verse 19 just because we're at verse 18. He says, for in him, talking about Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is not just supreme, but he's also our Savior. He is the solution. He is restoring all things to himself. And the deeper we understand this, the more we talk about this with each other, the greater Jesus is and the greater our understanding is of him. And then the less we think of ourselves, the less we depend on ourselves and the more we depend on Christ who is the solution. Lastly, when we're thinking about having the right focus of proclaiming Christ, we proclaim Christ as sufficient. He is enough for all of life. Later on in, in Colossians in chapter 3, Paul says, If then, in 3.1, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is at the right hand of God, seek those things that are above, not earthly things. And why is that? In 3.3, he says, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, Christ is everything to us. 
when we're talking about helping others become like Christ, we're reminding them that Christ is sufficient for every part of our lives. He is enough. Paul would say in in Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ. And you always, you always would think, like, that doesn't really make sense with grammar. Like, it needs a helping verb. For me, to live is worshiping Christ, loving Christ. No, Paul says, for me, to live, all of it, it's Christ. That's what we proclaim. That is the driving focus of Paul's ministry. Him we proclaim. It bears asking... If Jesus is, is not the focus of your counsel, then what is? Where does the source of change come from? Is it from you? Is it from man's wisdom? And it also bears saying that you can't proclaim something that you don't know. Do you know the Savior? Have you realized your sinfulness? Would you agree with God that you are unable to save yourself by your own righteousness. And God is just to send you to hell. And it's only by calling out to Christ and his mercy and trusting in him, turning from your sin, that you can have new life with Christ. Have you done that? If you don't hear anything today and you haven't done that, that is the most important thing for you today. So when we think about doing this to others, friends, you can do this. If you're hearing this and you're like, that's nothing new, exactly, you can do this. This is what we can share with each other. This is how we build up the body of Christ. We proclaim him as supreme, as savior and sufficient. We are to preach Christ and only Christ. And if you know Jesus as your savior, you can proclaim him with confidence because of who he is, not because of who you are. We don't need to help him. Okay, so you get that, but like, how does that actually work? Like, that's such a broad thing and that's like how do I get down to the nitty-gritty of how that actually works well Paul gives us the answer because he gives two participles in verse 28 that are describing what this proclaiming is and so not only do we need to have the right focus but we need to utilize the right means and when we're thinking about doing spiritual good to someone else so that they might become more like Christ we need to utilize the right means Paul says him we proclaim how by warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So warning and teaching are actually how proclamation is done. That's how we do it, okay? Well, how do we warn and teach? Oh, I'm glad you asked. We will, we're going to see, Paul talks a lot about this, actually. He talks about admonition a lot. And when we think of this term warning, or what could also be described as admonishing, we kind of think of something negative, and that's, that is what's going on here. There's the negative side of the coin and the positive side of the coin, which is teaching. And this, this Greek word, nuthateo, means to put into mind, to put something into another person's mind, to, to caution them, to reprove them, to warn them because you care about their well-being. And notice that wisdom is what's undergirding this. So as we're thinking, well, how do we admonish someone to do spiritual good for them? How do we admonish someone with all wisdom? Just a few things. This isn't exhaustive. But examine yourself. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Jesus talks about taking the, the plank out of your eye before you help your brother with the speck. And that verse, you know this, isn't just there to say that you can't ever point out someone's sin. It's saying that 
that you're not to be a hypocrite. So get the log out of your eye first, and then you can help your brother with the speck in his eye. And when we do this and we check ourselves, it gets us in the right state of mind before you address your friend and you, you realize how you also have failed. And by God's grace, you are who you are. It's important to be in the right mindset. It's, it's more important to be godly than to be right. Secondly, when we're admonishing somebody, be clear and be gentle. And as we're thinking about this, how do we help someone become more like Christ? I want you guys to see that this is, this is something you guys can do if you're not already doing it already. Be clear and be gentle. Ephesians 4.15, Paul says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head into Christ. And oftentimes we don't want to do this because we're afraid we're going to seem harsh. And so we'll kind of just, hey, you know, if there's there's kind of this thing you might want to try something else, I don't know, Uh, we'll kind of beat around the bush because we don't really want to have to stick our necks out that far and have that hard conversation. And Paul says, speak the truth, be clear, but do it in love. I remember a when I first started teaching uh, Sunday school here, one of, the, one of the leaders who was in there, after a lesson, came up to me, and I could tell there was something he needed to talk to me about, and so I was kind of like, oh, what happened? And he came up to me and said, Nate, like, that was, that was such a good lesson. That was so good. But well, there, was, there was something that you said in there, and, and I know you're, you're, it may not have even crossed your mind. You were probably up late, um, and you do such a good job. And, but there was just something that you said, and I don't know your heart, and I don't think this is what you actually believe, but when you said this, and I'm like, ah, oh, just tell me, what is it already? It's like, well, when you said this, that's not really what the text is saying, and you actually kind of confused people with, with who Jesus is here in this verse. It's like, oh, I had no idea. Thank you. I had no option but to be grateful. I couldn't even be mad at the guy because he was so gentle, so kind, but also clear. We're thinking of admonishing someone to help them. We need to guard against overly shaming them. When Paul writes his letter to the church in Corinth, the Corinthians were doing a bunch of bad stuff, and Paul rakes them over the coals. He admonishes them all over the place, especially for their arrogance and their pride. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, nutheteo, as my beloved children. Remember, when we think about having to have these hard conversations, the point is to bring them back, not just to make a point. Also, remember that sin is your enemy and not the person. The sin is your enemy, and not the person. Second Thessalonians 3.15, Paul says of a brother who is caught in sin, Do not regard him as your enemy, but warn him as your brother. There will be times when, if you decide to do this, or if you're already doing this, there will be times when people will buck your counsel, you will be kind and gracious, and they will respond in bitterness and slander. You will remind them over and over again of this truth, and they'll say, nah, no, no. And when that happens, you can kind of start to see that person as an enemy that needs to be conquered instead of a brother or sister who's caught, who has a weakness, who needs patience. The sin is your enemy, not the person. Lastly, and this is crucial, when you're admonishing someone, give them hope. 
Show them Christ. Remember, this is how we're proclaiming Christ to one another. Show them Christ. Remind them the reason you're saying these hard things is because you love them. And Christ has something more for them. He wants to see you restored. You can agree with Paul that even in this hard thing, he can make this work out for your good. Romans 8.28. So friends, don't shy away from admonishing one another. Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Be a good friend to somebody. Love them, care for them, admonish them. What's the other half? Well, if we, if we tell someone something's wrong and then we just go about our merry day, that's not helpful. Oftentimes, people know there's a problem, but they don't know, maybe they're confused on what the actual problem is, or they don't know how to make a plan to attack that sin, or they're just not sure what to do. And so, we, not just admonishing someone, we have to then fill in those gaps with the teaching of the scriptures, with reminding them who is Christ. Remember, this is part of proclaiming Christ, instructing one another in who the scriptures say Jesus is. So we surrender our life to Christ because he's supreme. We teach him that he's supreme. We teach him that no matter what trial we're in, Christ is our savior. He's the solution. He will never let us go. And no matter how confusing this issue is, Christ is sufficient and he is able to help you through this issue. Teach them who Christ is. Romans 12.2, you all know it well. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. Transformation comes when the Holy Spirit engages our mind through the truth of Scripture, through faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And when they are willing, when we are willing to do spiritual good to someone in order to help them become more like Christ, we get to participate in what God is doing in their life. So what brings the success? What, how do we know this can happen? Well, you have to be grounded in the right understanding. You have to be grounded in the right understanding. Look back in Colossians 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone. How? With all wisdom. With all wisdom. Wisdom here meaning a knowledge or a skill. It's actually something that you can grow in. And someone who, who has wisdom knows how to talk to somebody. They know when to talk to somebody. They know what truth to teach them. They know how to teach it. And so maybe you're saying, well, that's just it. I'm not wise. Right. You are not. I am not wise. But Christ is. Paul would gives further insight on what he means here by wisdom in chapter 2, verse 3, just a few verses over. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friends, as you grow in wisdom and the knowledge of Christ, you have access to all that you need, not because of what you know, but because of who Christ is. So I want you to see this. Do you see how doable this is? This is so doable. You can have confidence. You can minister to somebody with confidence because it's not about you. It's about your Savior. It is Christ through the Scriptures that say this. So when you're admonishing someone, it's not you saying it. It's the Scriptures. When you're helping someone understand, this is how we obey. It's not me. This is what Christ would have you do. This is what the Scriptures would have you do. This is so doable. You can have confidence because you're not relying on your own understanding. So we keep the right focus 
we use the right means, we're grounded in the right understanding, but for what purpose? And this is crucial. If we're not aimed at the right goal, then we will employ the wrong strategy. So we have to be aimed at the right goal. And Paul gives us what that goal is. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, verse 28, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is Paul's goal, is to present everyone that he encounters mature, complete in Christ. Paul is not interested in being somebody's guru that will always be dependent on him. Paul is not interested in in building his own kingdom. He's not looking at for recognition or for validation. Paul's goal, his driving force, the thing that motivates him most is to see those whom he encounters mature or fully developed or complete in Christ Jesus. This is not something Paul is making up. This is something that, is, that actually God himself desires. Look, look with me. I want you to see this in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. If you're, not a, if you're an underliner or star or marker, this is a verse that needs to be marked up in your Bible. Paul writes here, For those whom he, talking about God the Father, those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be firstborn among many brothers. So look closely here. I I want you to see this. Why is it that God predestines those who will be saved? So that they will be conformed to the image of his Son in order that Jesus would be firstborn among many brothers, and firstborn here, back to preeminence, not that Jesus was, was, was first in line of succession being born. Jesus doesn't conform to someone else's image. We do. We, sinful man who once were broken, are now being remade to look, to think, to talk, desire, and to be like our King Jesus. That is why Paul makes this goal his goal. He wants to present everyone he encounters complete and mature in Christ. And friends, what better goal could you have for your life than to have what God himself desires for you and for others so that they would be conformed to the image of his son? Well, it bears asking, if, you're, if you do inductive Bible study, you're taught to do observations, maybe you're observing there's a word that keeps being repeated in here, and it's everyone. Three times it's repeated. And you might be asking, well, who am I supposed to do this for and to? Well, three times everyone is repeated. And the context that's going on here is Paul is talking uh, to the church in Colossae. In the context here, he will address later on in the book uh, these false teachers that came into Colossae. And it's, they're probably the Gnostics. And what the Gnostics did is they, they taught Jesus wasn't, wasn't deity they were this weird cult, but they posed themselves as the elite people. They were the ins, everybody else was out. They were the have, everyone else was the have-nots. And if you were super special, you got to be a part of their club. And they were the people who were kind of assaulting this church and tempting people to maybe uh, doubt Paul's ministry. And so Paul here very purposely says, everyone, everyone, everyone. 
And Paul is not discriminating here against who can be complete in Christ. There is no select group that is to be poured into for discipleship. Any age, ethnicity, economic background, man, woman, whatever your personality is, all are eligible for discipleship. Friends, we're not to limit ourselves to just the people that we really like or get along with. We are to do deliberate spiritual good to those that we encounter, anybody, so that we might help them become more like Christ. Now, if you're thinking that, maybe there's people going through your mind, and there's people coming to your mind that you're really excited about. Like, yeah, I want to pour into them. That would be awesome. And then maybe there's people that come to your mind, and you kind of go, whew, because you know that to pursue them and pour into them would be a lot of work. A lot of work. Well, Paul would actually agree with you that this thing called discipleship or one anothering, it is a lot of work. Look back in Colossians 1.28, verse 29. Paul says, for this, what? This reason of presenting everyone mature in Christ, I toil and struggle. And he uses these interesting words to describe this. The, what he's using for toil, kapieo, is a, is a word that talks about extreme physical fatigue, exhaustion. It's the same word that Peter would use in Luke 5.5 5 when he talks about how, Lord, we were, we were toiling all night, throwing our nets in the water, pulling them in, bent over backwards. We're beat. That's what Paul's talking about. This thing that Paul desires to do, for this he toils, he strains, and he agonizomai, he's striving. This word in the English is where we get our word agony from. It can be agonizing. It's used of athletic competition of people's muscles being strained against each other. And when I was in high school, I played offensive line for a few years and on the football team, and I had a, a teammate who was a lineman, and he was one of the best athletes I'd ever seen. He was this big dude, but he was quick and agile, and he was the toughest guy on the team. And I'll prove it to you. One night on a big game, uh, he got chop blocked by a guy. And that means instead of the guy hitting him in the chest, he dove at his legs. And it hit him weird. The guy hit him super hard. And something happened because he was in a lot of pain. And this guy does not show pain. He was in a lot of pain. But he refused to leave the game. He refused to go out, and he played the entire second half through his pain. And I can still see in my mind's eye, like, the agony writhing on his face in our huddles. And I could, I could hear his teeth gritting in my, in my ear as he's straining, protecting the quarterback for his team. I don't remember how the game went, which probably means we didn't win, but for the sake of the story, we won the game. It was totally worth it. And the next day, he goes and gets an x-ray, and he finds out that he had multiple fractures in one of his legs. He essentially played the whole second half on a broken leg. I don't know how he did that. It was crazy. And he, we, we asked him about it. He was like, oh, it was worth it. It was worth it. Now, you might be thinking, that is so dumb. And it is. It is dumb. Why would you do that to yourself for a football game? But the point is this. Friends, we have everything in our life. We have things in our life that we're willing to toil and labor and struggle over because it matters to us. 
How much more should we be willing to toil and to labor and to struggle for things that matter to King Jesus? When you regularly and intentionally do spiritual good to somebody, you will undergo agony. You will stay up late. You will wake up early. You'll get calls during supper and have to come back to a cold meal. You will give them counsel and they won't listen. You will help them with the same thing over and over and say the same thing over and over and over again. It can be agony. But it is worth it. It is all worth it because that person matters to Jesus. It's worth it to Christ. So, thinking about this, remember, last part, let's go to the last part of the verse. As we're toiling and struggling, we have to employ the right effort. The right effort. Paul says, for this I labor and I agonizomai with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. The reason, brothers and sisters, you can have confidence to do this is because you're not doing this in your own strength. You're not doing this in of yourself. It is the power of Christ that is working in you. Jesus does not burn out. He does not cave under pressure. He does not walk away from a trial. He does not crumble under the fear of man. You and I, operating under our own strength, we crumble under all those things. But Christ does not. We can do this, friends. This is, a, this is a ministry that is not only for just church leaders. It is for everyone. Now, maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, but. Yeah, but. Well, maybe there's some objections. I'm going to take a few minutes and maybe see if I can answer some objections you might be having. Not exhaustive, but just a few. Maybe you're thinking, I don't have time. And there can be seasons in life where ministering to someone outside your own family is just not possible. That can happen. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But ultimately, friends, busyness is not an excuse for disobedience. It's not. While ministering to the church in Thessalonica, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. Paul worked a physical job and didn't take money from them. He worked night and day in the first century where like, you had to work for every meal. And he did this while he proclaimed the gospel of God. At some point, you can't keep these things you're learning to yourself. Mark Dever says, the Christian faith is personal, but it's not private. Maybe you're saying, I don't have a ministry. I'm not close to anyone. I don't even know where to start. We'll start in your home. If you have kids in your home, start with your kids. The most profitable discipleship relationships I have with the young men in the youth group are young men who have fathers who are already giving them intentional time. Get involved in a Bible study. That's one of the reasons we have them. It's just a slow pitch for discipleship ministry. Start by taking someone out to coffee. Take the initiative. Oftentimes people want to talk about issues or want to learn, but they don't know how to bring it up. Take the initiative. Ask God for opportunities and then be obedient when those opportunities happen. Maybe you're saying, I don't know what to say. That's okay. Just say what the Bible says. Just say what the Bible says. Study. Grow yourself. 
Maybe you're saying, I might mess them up. If you say what the Bible says, you won't mess them up. You can do this. Well, this is only for church leaders. Well, Paul would say to you in the book of Colossians 3.16 that if, the, if Christ is dwelling in you richly, then we need to be teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Maybe you're saying discipleship is only for extroverts. No, it's for Christians. It's for Christians. There's a variety of ways to do this. And so don't limit your view of discipleship to one or two scenarios that don't work for you. Find a way. Maybe you're saying, maybe you won't say this out loud, but I've thought this. If I start asking questions, I'm going to have to get involved. I don't really want to do that. Well, that says more about you than it does the other person. And so now you have an opportunity to repent. I've had to do that many times because I'm so weak. Maybe you're saying, what if I find something out that I really don't know how to address? Well, then bring someone in with you and disciple them together, and then you'll learn for the next time. Maybe all that happens is you send them on to someone else who is more mature, and you become their advocate and their encourager. And then lastly, and this is, this is what I pray for in the church, this is what I hope is not the case, but I fear may be the case in this church, I can't do this because I'm hiding a secret sin of, of my own. And maybe you're thinking, if I do this, if I pursue somebody, eventually this thing that I'm hiding is going to come out and I'll be ruined. Well, friend, it is better to be embarrassed and ruined in a temporal sense and then it be exposed in eternity when you, it's too late to correct it. Satan loves nothing more than sidelined, ineffective Christians. So get the plank out of your eye. Repent. Be restored to your Savior. And then help others who have been caught in the same sin. This is something for all of us. And it is awesome when you employ the right method. Now, remember Bill and John from the beginning. I'll tell you how things went. Uh, despite Bill's reservations, he was counseled to pursue discipling John. So, when the, the men's Bible study took their summer break, he asked John if he would like to keep meeting on Friday mornings, and they would just talk about life and what they were studying in the Scriptures. And John enthusiastically agreed. And so they met throughout the summer, and Bill... Uh, fueled John's love for theology, and though he was awkward and clunky and uh, unclear at times, was able to confront some of these sin issues that he saw in John's life. And by God's grace, John often responded well. And so today, Bill and John continue to meet together, but now they meet, their meetings are much more spread apart. John is on fire for Christ. He's leading his family well. He actually is uh, leading several Bible studies of his own. He's discipling other men, and he's actually pursuing higher, the higher education theological training. And now when Bill and John get together, they meet as, as peers, mutually encouraging one another. And Bill has his hands full, uh, being the youth pastor at Flint Hills Bible Church and filling in for Pastor Dave when he's not here. That was, that was my first real opportunity to pour into somebody, and it was awesome. 
And I, it was not easy, but it was awesome. And I say that because there is no way that I could get someone to that point on my own. There is, I am not that persuasive. I am, do not have that ability to bring transformation to someone's life that way throughout those years. But Jesus did, and I was able to have a front row seat to what Christ was doing, and it was awesome. Right now, brothers and sisters, in this church, in your sphere of influence, there are people who need help. Maybe they're having a tough time in a new phase in life, whether old or young. There are unbelievers who need to come to Christ and be taught these foundational truths that we all love. There are others who are caught in sin, and though they want to be free, they don't know how, and they're too ashamed to talk to somebody about it. Who will walk with these people? Who will help them grow and become more like Christ? May I suggest that it's you. You are the one Christ wants to use. When we have the right focus and we use the right means, when we're grounded in the right uh, understanding, when we use the right effort, we can have confidence that God will use you and bring glory to himself because you are not the one doing it. It is him working through you, and it is worth all the toil and energy because that person matters to God. All you have to do is be faithful. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done in my life. I thank you for the work that you've done in the lives of, of the believers in this room. And God, you uh, say that you do not leave us where you're at, but you desire for us to grow in godliness, that one day you will present us perfect and complete, and we will have glorified bodies, minds, and hearts. But Lord, that process to get there is up and down, and is a process of growth. And you often use other people in each other's lives to do spiritual good, that they might become more like you. So God, would you empower us to share your truth with others? Would you give us the confidence in knowing that it is not us doing the work, but it is you working in us? And I pray that you would do this in our lives and in this church and in this city. In Jesus' name I pray.